Our second, our second Bible reading this morning is from Ephesians chapter 4 starting at verse 17 and you can find it on page 1135 of your pew Bible. It's called Living as Children of Light. So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord that you no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. You, however, did not come to know Christ that way. Surely you heard of him and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught, with regard to your former way of life, to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness." Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbour, for we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are angry, while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. He who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with his own hands that he may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. We give you thanks for this, the word of the Lord. Thank you, uh, Greg, for reading God's word to us this morning. Uh, Brothers and sisters in Christ, let's pray, then let's look at God's word. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we can have it read to us this morning. We thank you for the freedom we enjoy in this land. Oh Lord, I pray this morning that your spirit will minister to our hearts, that you would equip us, Lord, to live the new life in Christ. For we we need the power of your spirit to do this, Lord. I ask your blessing upon the proclamation of this word. In Jesus' name, Amen. Well, friends, this morning uh, we're going to look at this topic, how to live the new life. It is part one, and next week we're going to look at part two, as we continue to work our way through the book of Ephesians. So I want to encourage you to please keep your Bibles open to Ephesians uh, chapter four as we work through our passage this morning. Last Sunday, we looked at Ephesians chapter 4, 17 to 24, 
And we noted that we are not to live as the Gentiles do, that is, as the non-Christians do. That is, we are not to live as non-Christians do in this world. Instead, we are to live as those who have, by God's grace, put on the new self, which is being renewed daily with the renewing of our minds. And this renewing of the mind to live such lives is not due to some self-help ethics course or some value course or values course or moral course. It is through the working of the Spirit of God that brings about a change and transformation in our thinking that in, in and that also affects the way we live. So there is that connection of the heart and the mind and our behavior. And that's what we looked at last week. It is only possible because God has done a work of grace in our lives. Paul reminded us and reminded the, the Ephesian church that the connection here is because of Jesus. Remember, we said that uh, Paul reminded the Ephesian church that they learned Christ. Three things. They learned Christ. They heard Him. That is, when the Word of God is preached, Christ ministers to us. And that you were taught in Him. Three things that Christ has done. And therefore, we are not to live like those who don't know Jesus, but rather as those whose lives are being changed and transformed and being shaped by Christ. Paul is not a legalist. Christians are those whose lives have been saved by grace and who live by grace. Therefore, we live in response to God's grace to us. Not out of legalism, but we live because His grace has come upon us and we live out of grace. We don't live to secure grace, we live out of grace. Our morals, our values are shaped by Jesus. And our relationships are shaped by Christ as well. Our morals and our values as Christians are shaped by God's word. And this should impact the way you and I live in this world. And how we relate to one another in the church, in our homes, in our workplaces in the society at large. Because this is what Paul said last week, and we saw this, and be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God, in true righteousness and holiness. And we need to remember that this, that as is, uh, that the readers of this letter, the Ephesians and others, were a mixed group of people, of both Jewish and Gentile Christians. The Jewish believers had been raised with the Bible, the Old Testament. They knew it from their young days. But the Gentile believers had come out of a non-Christian environment. And they needed to be taught how the family of God needed to live together as a new body in the church. Just think about this. There were Jewish Christians. There were Gentile Christians. They were living in a context of an environment that was supercharged. With the goddess Diana there. The sex goddess. Things were happening at the temple. And they lived in this supercharged environment. And some of them had come out from various backgrounds. They were slaves. Some of them, some of them were tempted to, to, uh, to steal things. 
They didn't know really what it meant to, to control their anger. They were new Christians from different cultures coming in together to live as one body in the church. And so Paul encourages the, the, the new church, the, the Ephesian Christians and others to whom he wrote this letter to relate well to one another. And it is so applicable to us as well, isn't it? They needed to learn how the family of God lived together as a new family. And so also for us, we need to learn to relate with each other as God's family in his church, as he brings people from many parts of the world into his family. And so Paul speaks about the relational aspects of life now. And we're going to look at Ephesians uh, chapter 4, verse, just, just three verses this morning, 25 to 28. We're going to focus our thoughts on those verses today. And uh, Paul says, you have taken off the old clothing, so to speak, and you put on the new self. Hence, live out the new life. And three things that we're going to look at today, which is up there as well. Line and truth, anger and sin, stealing and work. I kind of battled with this passage. I thought, oh, maybe we could go the whole uh, text here. But there's a lot of material here also in, in, in this section, right? So we're going to look at line and truth. He begins by speaking about lies. Look at verse 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Therefore, he connects what he has said before. He has given us how to live as well in the new life, the new self. And he says, therefore, because you put on the new self, which Christ himself has put on you, you're wearing new clothes now. You've taken the old clothes out. You have been put with new clothes. Your life has now been changed. Your mind has been renewed. You are living a new life under Christ. Therefore, do these things. What's the first thing he says? Put away falsehood. What is falsehood? It's a lie. Someone said this, a lie is a statement contrary to fact with the intent to deceive. A lie is a statement contrary to fact with the intent to deceive. You see, lying was very common at the time as well. Not, nothing has changed today. Lying begins from our young days. From the time that we might take a chocolate, perhaps, from uh, the pantry. Or maybe a lolly that we're not supposed to take. And your parents would ask you, did you actually have that lolly? Of course not. Did you steal that car? No, I did not do that. No way would I do that. We begin with little lies, don't we? It starts from the very young age, lying, and so it continues on. Lying in our business dealings, lying by betraying confidence, lying to friends, lying to our spouses, lying to our parents, and the list goes on. I read an interesting story this past week. The story is told of a baker who suspected that the farmer who was supplying his butter was giving him short weight. So the farmer carefully checked the weight for several days and finally he complained to the authorities and had the farmer arrested. But the judge threw the case out when the farmer explained to the judge that he had no scales and he used a one pound loaf of bread from the baker as his counterbalance. <laughs> he used this one pound from the baker as his counterbalance and so he could not be charged because the baker was doing the same thing. He was being ripped off 
And so the case was thrown out. See, where did lying begin? Where did this whole thing about lies begin? It began with the father of lies, Satan himself. And we can trace it right back to the garden in Genesis chapter 3, where Satan, in the form of serpent, comes in and starts this whole process of lying. Why do people lie to one another? How did lying come about? The answer is right back, as we trace back to Genesis chapter 1, to the very existence of, of creation itself, where Satan comes in the form of a serpent and starts this process of lying. Prior to the fall, all was good. In Genesis 3, we have the introduction of Satan in the form of a serpent. And you can read about this in Revelation chapter 12 as well. And the great dragon was thrown down, the ancient serpent. See that? Who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. You see, Satan is the ancient serpent. Takes us right back to Genesis, who is called the devil and Satan. What else more? He's the deceiver of the whole world. And he was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. Now, why did Satan become a fallen angel is a mystery. We don't know all of these things. One day, hopefully, we will know. But we know for certain that Satan is real and that he exists. Correct? Yeah? Satan does exist. We know that. We read in the account of Genesis, the, the whole fall of Adam and Eve, there was lies and deceit. You see, Satan came to Eve and he twisted the truth. And then Eve, in turn, took that, that whole message to Adam. And then Adam and Eve together were responsible for the fall. They were together responsible for disobeying God. But it began with lies and the twisting of the truth. It's very easy to twist the truth, isn't it? To say a little lie and twist the truth. It can happen so easily. And it began with Satan himself. And listen to what Jesus said. Uh, when you are speaking to, uh, to those who had come to him and were accusing him of all kinds of things, you are of your father, the devil, and your, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Satan lies about life, about God, and Paul says now to new Christians and to us, God's word tells us, put away lying of falsehood and speak the truth. Speak truthfully to your neighbor is the phrase that is used here, and in fact it comes from Zechariah chapter 8 and verse 16, where God says, these are the things that you shall do, speak the truth. To one another, render in your gates judgments that are true and make for peace. And Paul connects Zechariah chapter 8 right here in this passage. Now, why would God say this? Well, he is the God of truth. The Jewish members of the church were familiar with the Old Testament writing and the quotation from Zechariah. And it would have been very telling for them. Our text here says, speak truthfully 
to our neighbor. Who is our neighbor? <laughs> Who is your neighbor? Our neighbor is anyone that we come in contact with. Is that correct? I might walk on the street and somebody might have had a fall or something. And you will help that person I trust. Because that person becomes our neighbor. We have so many people around us. But the context here is also, friends, a reference to other Christians in the body of Christ. Because Paul says here in our text, For we are members one of another. Now, of course, we don't lie to our neighbors and our non-Christian friends. But it becomes even worse when we lie to our brothers and sisters in Christ. Why? Because we are members, do you see that? Of one another. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. When we are in families, we would expect that our families would speak the truth, right? You would expect for those of us who are parents, that our children would speak the truth to us. Where have you been today? I don't really remember. Or you might come up with all kinds of excuses. A family to function well, there should be truth. For a society to function well, there should be truth. But yet, my dear friends, we fail, don't we? And God knows that. And he knows that our humanness makes us fail. We've all said lies. Anyone here who's not said a lie in his or her life? We have. See, lying becomes part of our human nature and God knows that. And he says, put away falsehood. It's something that you've got to work at it all the time. Because it's so easy to tell a lie. So Christians, as brothers and sisters in Christ, we have to work at this, to speak the truth. And so Paul says, put off a life of lying, of speaking lies, and put on a life of telling the truth to your neighbor. For example, if you go to the courts as a witness, or if you're standing in the dock before a judge, you would be If you're a Christian, they'll ask you to have the Bible in your hand and you take an oath. I would say the truth and nothing but the the truth. Why is that? (laughs) Because we know that our hearts are susceptible always to tell a lie. So lies are to be put away. And Paul says, put off that life of lying. And so in our Colossian passage uh, that we read this morning... Do not lie to one another. The the corresponding passage here in Colossians. See that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which has been renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. For the best way to kill a lie is to speak the truth. The best way to kill a lie is to speak the truth. Because eventually the truth will come out. (laughs) Okay. Notice the reason for not lying, as I said, for we are members of one another as the body of Christ. Let's move on. Verse 26. It says, now we're talking about anger and, and, and sin here. Verse 26. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to whom? Verse 26. Opportunity to? You're following the text? (laughs) To the devil. Alright? We'll come to that in a moment. 
Be angry and do not sin. Now I must say that the topic, topic of anger is a major and complex issue. And there is no way that we can deal with it extensively this morning, nor is the purpose of this text to deal with that extensively. And yet it is an important subject because it has to do with our relationships. Relationships matter, don't they? Our family matter to us, right? Our friends matter to us. Imagine a life without relationships. What a boring life that would be. We have friends, we have people around us, we connect We are social beings, don't we? We interact with one another. We speak to one another. We need one another in the church, in our families, in our society. And yet anger is one of those things that can destroy relationships. And there is no way, as I said, we can deal with this extensively. Well, what about anger? There are three words that are used in the original, in in the, in the Greek text, to speak about anger. One is the word... Uh, that describes anger as getting to a boiling point. It is an anger that goes up in smoke. That's one of the Greek words that's used. It is just like the blowing of a head gasket. Have you had a, ever had a head gasket blow up in your car? <laughs> it's not a very pretty sight, really, actually. It's a terrible thing. Well, one, it's a costly thing as well. <laughs> Hits your wallet. Secondly, it's all smoke. It happens, and you open up the bonnet, and boom, it's all smoking everywhere. A head gasket has blown up. And when I take my car to a mechanic, he will say, Chris, after 100,000 Ks, you have to replace the head gasket so that you prevent the gasket from blowing up. That's anyway, my car, yours must be different. Um, but the point is, it blows up. It's a boiling point. That's, that's one of the words that's been used here. So anger can be like blowing of the head gasket. You blow up. It's not a very pretty sight. Secondly, there is the other word that is used. It is uh, anger that refers to an inner seething. It also has the understanding of resentment. It builds up until it becomes ugly. And then there is bitterness that settles in. And there is resentment that starts to come in from within. And later on in the passage, we won't touch on that today, Paul speaks about bitterness. And that's where anger, when it's deeply rooted and not dealt with, there is resentment that leads to bitterness. We'll touch on that later. A bitter person. Because there is an unresolved anger. A resentment that is going on. And there's the other word for anger, which is the word that is used here, that proceeds from an internal disposition and steadfastly or continuously opposes someone or something. You, you continuously oppose that person, continuously oppose something, and you become, to, to, the, to the extent that you provoke a reaction. You see, the word for anger here in our text is the last one. Right, you get this word called orge, which is a rare word, and it's a response to a particular situation or event that causes exasperation. And as we see from these words, friends, that anger can take many forms and show itself in different settings. It can take its form and settings in rage. We heard the last few days, haven't we, about road rage? <laughs> it's not a pleasant thing, right? Just, just last week, somebody was bashed, uh, nearly stabbed, 
road rage, you get angry, somebody cuts you on the freeway, on the side road, and you follow that person down the road, road rage. There's physical assault. There's murder. Just yesterday we heard, didn't we, somebody was murdered in Preston. Because they didn't get on together as neighbors. I was listening to the news last night. What's going on here? You see how anger has taken shape here? You see the neighbor had a problem with his other neighbor and it became an issue. Ended up because of uncontrolled resentment, too much, like a boiling point, blowing up, murder. Silent treatment. What about the silent treatment? What about resentment, holding grudges? And, and the list goes on. Well, we all get angry, don't we? Or we get mad. Yeah? <laughs> don't you? Let's, let's be honest here, right? We do get angry, right? And we get angry. We, we get mad at someone at work, at school perhaps, at home or on the road or wherever. Is it wrong to get angry? Is Paul saying, never be angry? Well, we can think that there is something intrinsically wrong about getting angry. But putting on Christ in the new life does not mean that we are never allowed to get angry. Paul presupposes this truth in this verse. Because there is such a thing as a righteous anger as well. Or we may call it righteous indignation. For example, when we hear of injustice, doesn't it make you angry? When you hear of a child being abused... Doesn't it make you angry? When you hear of Christians being persecuted, does that make you angry? When, you, when your child, um, if you're a parent and your child disobeys you and does something that he or she has not done, doesn't it make you angry? You want to discipline your child because you love your child? Or, or, or when you are a persecution, all of these things, these are things that make us angry. God himself shows his wrath, his anger against sin. Correct? God himself shows his anger against sin. And Jesus got angry. Look at that in, 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 in Mark chapter 3. He looked around them with anger and grieved at their hardness of heart. And said to them, stretch out your hand to this man. He stretched it out and his hand was restored. He became angry at the temple. Jesus is perfectly righteous and holy. The Lord's anger is always righteous anger. And so it is right to be angry in certain situations. Our text does not say never be angry. It says be angry and do not sin. Now friends, it's a fine line, isn't it? How do you know at which point you're crossing the line? Do you know that? When are you crossing the line from righteous anger to sinful anger? Do you kind of walk around thinking, oh, now this is, this is sinful anger, this is righteous anger, or oh, now I'm in the sinful camp, now I'm in the righteous camp. <laughs> it's hard. It is difficult. Uh, Paul, I think, again, refers to an Old Testament passage, Psalm 4, verse 4. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your hearts on your beds and be silent. That is the challenge. You see, anger is a strong emotion. And when we lose control of it, anger can take over and become an occasion for sin. It does not take much to lose our temper. For example, a husband comes home from a tired day at the office. And he expects his dinner to be ready. 
come on, guys, this, we must, this husband must live in another world. But anyway, it doesn't matter. We just, we go with this illustration for a moment. Husband comes home from a tired day at the office and he expects his dinner to be ready. In the meantime, the wife has also had a busy day. She has gone to work. Uh, she's picked up the kids. Uh, she has tried her best to prepare the meal in time. But it has just been one of those days. Right? One of those days. And you ladies, you know that, right? It's been one of those days and you are just at that point. Your husband comes home and says, Hey dear, where's the meal? I've had a tough day at the office. Don't you understand it? I'm coming home tired and exhausted. Where is my food? Don't you understand, woman? I need, I need food. The wife also gets angry. But she does not verbalize her anger. She keeps it all inside. And it begins a silent treatment. So both are crossing paths. One is looking for food, the other has not got food, and they're going in the kitchen this way and that way. Both the wife's anger and that of the husband are both sinful, are they not? It's a, it's a, it, it happens. Or it could be that you had a bad day due to some situation you faced in the office. Or, or, or somewhere else, someone said some, some, some crazy thing to you. And it brought you down, or whatever that statement was, and you come back home angry, and you carry that anger with you. And you take it out in the home, and to others who had no part to play. And your kids are thinking, why is dad so angry today, mom? Well, he's had a bad day at the office. So? What have the kids done to deserve that? Or what has your wife done to deserve that? Or what has your husband done to deserve that? You see what I'm saying? It's a righteous anger. Or sinful anger. It's your call to make. Alright? But I'm just giving you the points, isn't it? Become the silent anger bearers for no cause. Our text says, be angry and do not sin. And how do you do this? Is Paul for real? How are we to deal with anger and not cross the line to sinful anger? I think, this is a big topic. You might have to go for anger management courses if that's a major issue for you. But... But from the scripture point of view, I think by asking the Lord himself to show us when our anger crosses the line and asking him for help if we have a constant anger problem and repent of it. Paul says, do not let the sun go down on your anger and give an opportunity to the devil. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. For the word anger here, as I said, means the inner seething. It goes on deep in your heart. It becomes progression. It, it progresses to become re, uh, resentment. And we get the picture how it can go on to, to boiling points as well. The anger that is kept within starts to boil, starts to seed, it blows up. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. The idea is not to nurse your anger. To have the sun go down while you are angry is to take your anger to bed. It is to deal with it and to, to, to let it become a big situation without actually confronting it. Don't let it go down. Don't nurse it. That's the idea. Now, I've heard um, uh, counselors and read stuff on this as well. They say if you're a husband and wife, um, the best thing to do is to resolve your anger before you go to bed. <laughs> I've read a, 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 an opposing view as well there. It says, uh, and this author says, before you go to bed, it's best if you can talk it through. But while you're on bed and you're exhausted and you're tired, that's perhaps the last place to do about talking of anger because it can become worse as well. 
because you're both tired. The point is to deal with it, not to nurse your anger. Do not give the devil a foothold. Why would Paul say this? Anger, when left to, to simmer, is fertile ground for the devil. He is out there to destroy relationships. He is out there to destroy our lives. He is out there to target the church. Because a life filled with anger is fertile ground for the devil to cause havoc in your life and in the church. It is said that anger is an acid that destroys its container. And when we give Satan a foothold, he starts his corrosive work in our hearts. How about you this morning, friends? Have you let Satan have a foothold in your life? That corrosive work? One writer puts it this way. He loves, this is about Satan, he loves to lurk around angry people, hoping to be able to exploit the situation to his own advantage by provoking them into hatred or violence or a breach of fellowship. So don't let Satan get a foothold. Don't be the cause for provoking anger. Are you a provoker of anger by your sarcastic comments? You just put a little comment like that, just, just those one-liners, or just those two words, and you cause the other person to explode. Don't provoke. That's what God's word calls us. We are learning in our memory text, isn't it, to be completely patient and, and so forth. Thirdly, let's keep going, stealing and work. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Stop stealing, Paul says. Adam and Eve were given stewardship of the earth, and we read of it in Genesis chapter 1. Like Adam and Eve, we are called to be stewards of the things we have in this world, and therefore it is important to take care of those things we have. And within this context of stewardship, there is also the right to private ownership. Is that clear? There is a right to private ownership. It's not the socialist agenda that takes everything that belongs to you and distribute wealth. That's socialism. Take your wealth, take your bank accounts and distribute it to everybody. No, no, that's not... There is a place for private ownership. If not, God would not have given this command, do not steal. The eighth commandment. God gave the commandment, do not steal, to protect people and property. Now, you might say this morning, well, I haven't stolen anything. But there could be other ways that we might be, be guilty of stealing. Let me give you a quick, some quick examples. One is, what about if you are an employer... The laborer is worthy, or the laborers are worthy of their wages. Employers can exploit their workers by not paying them sufficiently. Is that a form of stealing? (laughs) Your workers are working really hard for you, but you're paying them a pittance. Think about that. Perhaps you're an employee. Is it possible to take the extra long coffee break? You have ten minutes for your coffee break, but you stretch it to about, what, twenty 25 minutes? I don't know. What about that? What about stealing someone's reputation by spreading false rumors of that person? It was Shakespeare who said, Who steals my purse? Steal trash. But he that filches, that is the word, filches means to steal. He that steals from me my good name makes me poor indeed. (laughs) Stealing someone's 
reputation. What about plagiarism? Copying someone else's work without acknowledging the person. Someone said to me some time back, why don't you look on the internet, pull out a sermon, come and read it at church. Be fine. Imagine if we would do that. <laughs> It'd be easy, isn't it? To go online, pull out a sermon, come here and just plagiarize the whole thing. It doesn't happen, friends. You know, work, work hard. I've just given you some examples. But rather, let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands. See, God calls us to work. Uh, the Proverbs uh, says this, Whoever works his land will have plenty of bread, but he who follows worthless pursuits lacks sense. God gives us work for a season. Then there is retirement and old age. There are those who may be seeking employment and just cannot find work or may not be able to find uh, for various reasons, health reasons and so forth. But for those who can, they are to work with their own hands, earning his or her living so that he can look after his family and provide for others as well. So, in summary this morning, as we conclude as well. This morning in our text we have looked at lying and truth, anger and sin, stealing and work. In the new life in Christ, we are to put aside falsehood, speak the truth. In, in our anger, we must be careful not to sin and not to take from others what is theirs. And work so that we can also provide for ourselves and for the needy. As we conclude, the new life is one that we have in Christ. We need to pray that the Lord will continue his work of transformation in your life and mine as we seek by the power of his spirit to live this new life in Christ. When we fail in these areas, and we do, I do, we, we need to look at Jesus. Correct? Because otherwise we live a life of misery. But we come to Christ and say, Lord Jesus, you died for me at the cross. All my shame was nailed to the cross. All my sins have been taken away. Oh Lord, help me to live this new life by the power of your spirit. Because by myself I will fail. But God can. And he does. And he takes those rough edges. And he makes them smooth. It's like a rough diamond. That God takes us. And he polishes that diamond. And it starts to shine. And so also I pray. For your life and for mine. And so friends. We can seek his help. To live the new life in him. Asking him to show us the areas. That we need to work on. In our lives. And in our relationships. May God help us to live this new life in Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you know our hearts. You know our struggles. You know our deep sins. O Spirit of the living God, Point us out, Lord, when we sin in any specific areas, Lord. Help us, Lord, to speak the truth. Help us, Lord, to control our anger. Help us, Lord, to work and to give. Help us, Lord, in our relationships 
to build strong, godly, loving relationships within your church family and in our lives in general. Pray your blessing upon our homes, our family relationships between husbands and wives, parents and children, for those who are single, for the widows and widows, for everyone, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.